Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 315 with Alan Willett. Alan was a smash hit in his previous episode, number 114. So we have him back to talk about how to lead with speed. So you'll learn one, how to work faster and smarter rather than longer. Two, approaches to accelerate the decision-making process. And three, why and how to let people add an egg. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, you'll find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F315. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some cool stuff. One cool thing I recommend is the Gold Nugget email list. So if you wish you could take notes on these insightful conversations, but your hands are tied up doing a workout or doing other work, well, we take those notes for you and send them to your inbox. And that's available over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Alan's story. Alan Willett is of the rare species who's an expert international consultant, speaker, and author. He has worked with companies ranging from one person to some of the giants, such as Microsoft and NASA. Alan says that his passion is helping people and organizations transform their friction points into profit points. Friction points, he defines as the space where the business needs and the implementation reality has a discordant collision. And there's some heat generated. Alan is the expert who transforms organizational friction points to produce positive results for the business and the people. Big thanks to Alan for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Alan. Alan, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's awesome to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to digging into some of your latest thinking. Uh, we, it was way back in episode 114 that we had you, and it seems like you've had a few new thoughts since then. Indeed, I have. What up episode are we up to now? Oh, boy. We are past 300, which is wild. Wow. Congratulations, Pete. Oh, thank you. Yes. Well, it's been a fun ride. People are, are into it. And uh, yours was uh, one, of the, one of the favorites. So it seems sensible to come on back. Really, it's great to be back. It's a lot of fun before. I look forward to fun today. Mm -hmm. Well, first, I need to hear, speaking of fun, you have a Guinness World Record to your name. Tell us all about this. Uh, okay. Well, yes, I do. I did end up in the uh, Guinness Book of World Records. It was called that back then. Is it different now? Yes, now called the Guinness Book of Records. Oh, okay. Ah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, that was a recent change, I believe. But yes. So uh, I remember back when I was at Rochester Institute of Technology in my sophomore year, two weeks before Thanksgiving break, two weeks before finals, our cross-country coach came to us and said, hey, I have a great idea for RIT's 150th anniversary, let's run across the country. Being 19 and young and vigorous, I said, sure, let's do that. So two weeks later, I finished my last final after my last all-nighters getting ready for finals. We drove nonstop to California, dipped our feet in the Pacific Ocean, turned around and started running all the way back to the Atlantic Ocean. That's cool. And so the record then is the, the distance or the first or, or what's... Um... Oh, question. Well, our goal was to meet the uh, Pony Express, which I'm told we did, which is very cool. And we also beat another team that had set a record previously of 20 days. We did it in 14 days. Oh, 14 days, four hours and eight 
minutes. <laughs> well, that that is quite. The, does it stand to this day, or did someone have to get up on that record and and shatter it themselves? Oh, somebody actually a subsequent RIT Rochester Institute of Technology team uh, did it for like I think RIT's 170th, 70th anniversary. They beat us. Uh, shame on them. <laughs> 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 Everyone wants to surpass the previous generation. Yes, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, well. So let's let's recap for for folks who didn't catch it the last time. You've got your company is called Oxseeker Inc. So what's the company about, and where did the name come from? Well, that name came from uh, well, two things. One is when I looked for names of uh, of uh, five years ago, six years ago, all the ones I thought were great were already taken. So uh, I went back to an old standby, which I coined the word Oxseeker back in the 80s. Uh, Zen poetry uh, has ox as a symbol of uh, enlightenment. And I always thought seeking enlightenment was a cool concept. So I use that word to really now mean uh, seeking excellence, because what I really have been doing with my work all along is trying to make organizations constantly better, constantly seeking a higher level of excellence. So that word really just sort of captured what I was about. Well, you know, that's so interesting. I did not know that the, the ox had that association prior to, to chatting with you. And the first thing that comes to mind when I think of an ox in the context of intellectual stuff is uh, I think uh, Thomas Aquinas, his nickname when he was in doing his studies was called like the ox because he, I guess he was just really big and and didn't say much, and they kind of made fun of him, like he was dumb, like a dumb ox. And then, like one of the teachers, like scolded his pupils. The legend has it, like, when this ox bellows, the whole world shall hear. Ah, oh, I like that story as well. That's good. Yeah, yeah. We add some layers to it. That's good. Fun. Well, well, tell us now. Your your latest fascination has been the uh, the need to lead with speed. I added the need myself. I had to triple the the rhymes there. So why why is this so important to you right now? Well, you know, I realize a lot of my whole work has been about that. For example, my previous book, which we talked about before, uh, leading the unleadable, was really about how to unwrap the gifts of those magnificent people who sometimes cross the red line, like the Mavericks, Cynics, and Divas. So because those people can really propel an organization forward at great speed. And if you uh, just fire them, you lose that fire. If you uh, let them run rampant, they destroy the organization. So you really got to manage them well. As I keep going into organizations, I keep hearing about the increased need for speed. This almost feels cliche because around you know the 1990s, the things seems like things were picking up. Now they're really picking up speed. To stay competitive, you got to constantly be learning, constantly upping your game, constantly providing better value to your customers or to your organization if you're just working them. Regardless, you got to be there. Uh, to me, it's even more than speed, it's acceleration. Okay, so you're saying just because in the nature of competition and globalization and, and sort of technology and, and these forces that we hear a lot about, is that kind of what's behind it to put the extra necessity these days? Yes, absolutely. And there's a second part too, which is I have seen too many people just burn out, really creative, smart, fun people that couldn't take the pace. So what I've really been trying to help a lot of people do and organizations do is not just survive, but thrive, to learn to love how to handle this pace and how to handle this pace in a sustainable way. 
so that they get plenty of rest, have plenty of fun, but are still setting a beat, setting a pace that is right for today's competition. And, and so then, well, that sounds like a little bit of a, a tension there in terms of being speedy and yet also not burning out. So, so what are some of the pro tips to accomplish both? Ah, well, here, first, let's talk about th- that balance. If I may go technical for a minute, uh, do you know I was also a software engineer for a while? I actually wrote software. I do, and that the, the software people love you because you you sort of speak both the languages that connect with the the software developers and and the those who love and manage them. So one of the things, uh, so here, let me put a couple things together here with this story. So this is about the balance and learning from this. Some of the things what I mean by leading by speed, for example, is uh, one we really want to hit speed to value. It's not about just furious activities signifying nothing, the sound and the fury. It's about speed to value. you got to have a purpose, a place to go, something that you want to provide. And the uh, next part I want to note is that you want a speed dashboard. In other words, like a car has, you know, lots of different odometer, speedometer, the uh, is it overheating or not, all those kinds of warning lights. That's what you need too. Meaningful, useful, useful set of data that answers the question, am I going faster? So uh, one of the things I did as a software engineer when I was writing code is I learned some techniques to really track my own data. So I had that useful data. And one of the things I did was track how fast I was going, how many uh, objects per hour I was producing of good quality code. And the uh, other one I was tracking was uh, how much rework I was doing, how many defects. So I stayed up late one night until like four in the morning to finish a program. Sounds like a good idea, right? (laughs) Pros and cons, I'd say. (laughs) Well, I thought, you know, I put in this extra 10 hours, I'll be farther ahead. And here's what happened. Tested the program the next day. It was full of errors. And I repeated this exercise a few more times just because I was a scientist curious. And I found out that when I worked extra hours late at night, my defect injection rate went sky high. I made way more mistakes. And those defects took me longer to correct than if I had went to bed and came up the next day and just wrote a couple hours of code the next morning when I was well rested. So really, working harder actually made me dumber. Working longer made me stupider. (laughs) So one of the really things I really try to work with organizations and people, it's not about the long hours. It's about really smart hours. It's about making sure you have this measured set of data so you actually know you're going faster and know how to go faster. You have the data to improve. Oh, that's intriguing. And I've I've read some studies along those lines with regard to you know a, a number of different environments and industries. And I think it was it was similar. It was it was video game development. They talked about when they have um rush mode or whatever the term they use in the industry, like when they work real hard because they got to make sure to deliver the thing on time as the deadline is is coming in. They they saw a similar pattern, you know, across. So it's not just you, but it, it's many folks who are doing intricate knowledge work. When you when you push hard and, and sleep less, sometimes you're, it's really quite disheartening to put all that effort in and to discover you would have been better off having uh, enjoyed some some sleep and rejuvenation and, and being sane and actually getting a, a better result on the other side. Absolutely. Now, there's exceptions to this, I got to note. But really, when you're doing that type of work, the intricate things where little mistakes cost you a lot of time, 
be well rested. That simple. Uh, but let's let's scale it up. Overall, what I'm talking about when I talk about the sustainable speed of leadership, it's really looking at this as a more of a marathon than a uh, sprint or a series of sprints. It's really looking at yourself and saying, how do I continuously improve and I stick to it for the long term? I'm I'm planning. I grew up on a farm. We don't retire on farms. We just keep working. So I'm in this for the long term. I want to keep continuously improving. And I don't want to get burned out, tired out while I'm doing it. So what's my uh, engine for improvement to stay relevant, to stay competitive? And how do I stay keep that balance? So one of the things I'm uh, working on in my the book I'm working on is called The uh, Four-Dimensional Balance, which is really about you know, four key concepts, the center of speed, how to keep your eye on the true prize, owning the speed of the game clock, and uh, four-dimensional balance. So those are some of the big concepts I'm playing with, of how to really keep people focused on how to achieve this intricate balance, as you put it. Now, so how does one keep your eyes on the true prize? And, and what are some of the distraction prizes that are, tend to lead us astray? Oh, that's easy. For example, a great question, though. Your eye on the true prize. Uh, well, first, true prize for me is a lot of things like just simply uh, doing good in the world, making sure that you're really truly providing value to your customers. Some of the false indicators can be, I need to make a profit for this quarter. I need to you know, have double-digit growth. I know as some actually some CEOs, for example, that were really focused on this double-digit growth. And they focused on it so hard that they started to fire people that weren't achieving it. So later, that CEO was convicted for keeping two sets of books. I actually believe he didn't actually know that people were keeping two sets of books. But the only way to stay employed was to have double-digit growth. So they gave it to him. Yeah, understood. So that's kind of pushing it so hard that you're cheating. And then, in a way, it's kind of like... Well, it's so intriguing in terms of like the, the details of that, that juicy, uh, scandalous situation. But I, I guess I've... It's my understanding that people really do feel a great sense of temptation toward cheating when it's kind of absolute, the only way uh, this must be, or it's just destructed everywhere. Right. I forget the exact quote, but uh, one of the quotes I really liked was something that was along these lines. Uh, chase, chase wealth, and it will flee from you. Chase wisdom, and wealth will follow. Hmm, that sounds so wise. Chasing wisdom. I believe it is. Mm-hmm. So uh, actually, I have the true price. So it's really, really being focused on what you really want to achieve for yourself in your organization. Okay. And, and so then when it comes to dashboards, can you give us some examples of all the more precisely, you know, great metrics or things to track versus suboptimal things to track? You mentioned quarterly profits can lead you one astray. Uh, what are some superior things to track? Well, here, let's talk about an individual for a minute, because uh, I know your audience is mostly individuals. And then we can talk about the larger one. But let's look at individuals and just say, uh, you're doing knowledge work like many of us have to do these days. Well, a couple of the things I try to track is how much value we provide for the effort we're putting in. Now, that's a really tricky thing to do, but it's worthwhile doing. But like uh, you noted in software development, uh, some of the things people use is function points. Well, they can even use lines of code uh, uh, per hour, things like that. Those can be tricky, 
But what you really want is a good proxy for value that makes sense. Another thing you can measure actually is how much cost to quality it takes to get something out the door. And quick definition of that. Basically, you do two weeks of development and eight weeks of testing before you can free it. You have 20% cost to quality. If you have uh, eight weeks of development and two weeks of testing and it works great and your customers love it, you have a 20% cost of uh, quality. So productivity is inversely proportional. The better your cost of quality, the better your uh, productivity. So that's a couple things personally one can track to really keep an eye on the prize. That makes sense? Mm-hmm, yes. So, and absolutely. For a business, uh, what you really want to be tracking to me, I believe, is customer loyalty, for example. Are you keeping the customers that you want, the ones that you truly prize? Are you growing in the right direction, uh, bringing on the customers you also want and really want to grow in that space? I don't think it's about how big you grow, but I think it's about having enough and being able to sustain that growth in a way that's uh, good for your organization. I know an organization uh, that I worked with, very happy being at 50 people in the organization and sustaining that. When they grew up to uh, 350 people, which the leader at the time said he never wanted to do, they ended up blowing up. He got distracted from his true mission to go after something bigger. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Thank you. And so you mentioned you had four, is it a four-part, what'd you call it? Four-part balance? Uh, four-dimensional balance. Four-dimensional balance. So can we can we unpack these components? Sure, I can give you another example. Owning the speed of the game clock. I love that one. I, I like sports. If you watch some of the greatest athletes, in my day, it was like Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, folks like that. Today, it's LeBron James, Stephen Curry for the uh, National Basketball Association. But if you watch these people, the best. They seem to be playing on a different pace than everybody else. And I don't mean faster. It seems like everybody else is kind of has frenetic energy around them. And they're just walking down the court and hit the right person at the right time. They just seem to be playing in a slower pace than everybody else with more results. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, Yeah. Another one. So there's a lot of elements to that, how you can own the speed of the clock as a uh, leader. And part of that is the center of speed. One of my favorite Super Bowl stories is where uh, Joe Montana, they're uh, San Francisco, they're down by a few points with a few minutes, just like a minute left on the clock or something like that. He's in the huddle and he says to the whole, his team, he says, hey, isn't that John Candy on the third row there? And everybody looks up and says, yeah, yeah, I think it is. So Joe was so cool, calmed everybody else down. And then just calmly threw a touchdown pass to win the game. <laughs> to me, a lot of the center of speed is really this inner calm that everything will work out. Mm, I like that. And, well, and now inner calm can be easier said than done. What are some of your perspectives for arriving at such a place? Learning that failure is seldom fatal and that you can learn a lot from it. So if you're not afraid of failure, you're not afraid of winning either. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I think really people have to overcome. I go on a whole rant about our school system, but I believe our school system sort of embeds fear in people. Fear of getting a bad grade, fear of getting something wrong, things like that. And really what we have to learn, or I'm learning in some ways, is to overcome FUD. FUD. uh, Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. 
you know, one of the questions uh, I've often been asked is, what slows leaders down? And there's a lot of things that can slow leaders down. But the number one thing is FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That's what makes people, for example, set up a committee to bring back desks to answer a question that should have been obvious. Right, is the fear of, I am scared to look really dumb and get this very wrong and have my sort of name and reputation attached to it. Therefore, I will go about sort of dispersing responsibility by, by assembling this committee. And in the process of having the committee, you've got all those extra people and, and decision steps and meetings that, that kind of slow it down. Right. And there's time and places for doing things like that. But too often, that's just a delaying tactic to avoid making a decision. Fear causes people to delay decisions until it's obvious what the decision should have been. Well, I want to talk about decisions there when it comes to decision-making rules or approaches, or what are some great ways to accelerate decision-making? One is, I guess, being courageous and, and not convening a committee when it's not necessary. What are some of your other approaches? I would say there's three critical things to uh, accelerating your decision-making process. Uh, number one, and these are, by the way, before you start the decision process, this is what you should be doing. Be clear about who's going to make the decision, how the decision is going to be made, and what risk level is acceptable. So I'll unpack that a little bit more if that's okay. Oh, yeah. There's actually basically three, four decision-making styles. That, and leaders that are really clear about this at the start do far superior. They can say this. I'm going to make the decision. I'm not taking any input. I just want you to know that. It's clear. I'm making the decision. I would like everybody's, I would like these people's input to make sure that I have all the data I need, but I'm going to make the call. By the way, if there's a crisis in the cockpit in an airplane, that's the number one decision-making style. Um, You don't have time for consensus. Somebody's got to decide, but collecting input greatly improves the effectiveness of pilots. Number three, is we are going to decide together. We're not going to do this unless we have consensus. We're all holding hands and leaping together. And number four is you can delegate. And you can say, it's up to you. Here's your budget. Here's your timeline. You make the decision. And here's my input. If you're clear about those things at the start, you're really going to accelerate the decision-making process. Yeah, I, I think where things really get fuzzy and so annoying and unpleasant is is when it's it's very unclear in terms of the decision-making process. Like, okay, we all know this thing needs to get done. It's a proposal or a, a, a product or an initiative or a something. We all know this thing needs to get done. And so we, we kind of know the, the players, sort of, who are involved. But, but then beyond that, it, it gets a little fuzzy. And, and I've, I, I chuckle sometimes because I've heard listeners ask for clarification associated with the decision making and and the answer they get in terms of who has a decision is well uh collaborate <laughs> which, which is really a non-answer it is a non-answer there i'll give you a situation even worse than that where the leader implies however vaguely that it's up to the group to decide and then the leader themselves makes the decision without any input Oh, that slows an organization down for weeks or longer because the level of anger is worse than if they said, hey, my decision, I'll take input maybe, but I'm going to make the decision. So much clearer, so much better, no anger. This reminds me, I had a situation where I was trying to help out with the committee that just sort of our, our planned some of our fun. 
in terms of, hey, you know, a few times a year, we're all going to get together. We're going to have some camaraderie, some team building, some good times. And so, so here are the activities. And so I thought, okay, this, this, this sounds like an interesting project. And so I, I talked to some people and gathered a bunch of ideas like, hey, what do you think would be fun for everyone to do? And so we came up with, with all these ideas and like, okay, perfect. Well, now we'll do a survey and see what everyone's thinking. And I, I recall one of the options was sailing. And I said, oh, that sounds really cool. I haven't done much sailing. That might be really interesting. And, and heck, we got some budget. Let's, let's live it up. And then I presented it to sort of the, the senior person in, in charge of the, the committee who, who really did make it kind of seem like, oh, yeah, you know what? Just see what everyone wants to do. And yeah, it's just fun. So, so go do it. And so he just, I said, hey, it looks like the results are pretty strong on the survey for, for sailing. And it was intriguing because he didn't admit to it, but he kept saying, you know what? I have a hypothesis that if we segment the data in this way, we'll discover that in fact, sailing is not the the optimal choice where and it was like, well, if you were committed to this activity, why did you kind of say that we were going to do it this other way? And it's like, and what do you have against sailing <laughs> is, is what I really wanted to know. It, it just didn't seem honest. No, absolutely. And that's, really problems come. And by the way, if that leader really wanted to do that activity, but wanted people to really be committed to that activity, just say this, hey, this is the activity we're doing. I want group to figure out how to get people really involved, how to make this activity really sing, how to make it better. Absolutely leave people room to add an egg to that cake, but you can point the direction to say what cake we're going to bake. That is a nice metaphor there. Add an egg to that cake. Is, the, is that the legend? Was it Sarah Lee or, or one of those companies that they had the cake mix and they could have had it all encompassing, but they wanted to make people feel like they had a part in the in the cake making process. So they said, you and you add an egg. And so it's like, oh, I did this. And so well, the legend is this. And it's true, actually, that they were selling a cake mix without adding an egg. This is at the time when people made cakes from scratch, and it wasn't selling at all. As soon as they had people add two eggs, which changed the taste not a bit, people started to buy the cake mix like crazy because people really need room to add an egg. And I really believe that in my consulting work as well. I have learned over and over again that when leaders hand you something that's done, they do not get the same level of involvement or quality when they leave enough room for people to add their own creative juices to it. When they do that, it gets better and people are more committed. And what's really cool about that that notion of adding an egg is it's it's really not all or nothing. You have a whole continuum of things from you figure out the activity to this is the activity, but you figure out the the food, you know, before or after or or the snacks during or the refreshments or how we're going to promote it. You know, there's there's any number of ways that folks can have some decision making authority and involvement in in doing that. And it's it's kind of fun that you get to kind of choose, hey, how much is mine versus how much is, is others and, and what are kind of the ground rules? Absolutely. Going back to what I said, you know, your question, how do we improve the speed of decision-making? Uh, let's also say, how do we improve the impact and results of decision-making? This is where leaders can constantly learn. They have to learn which of these styles to use when, because sometimes you may have a group of people that you really want to own the outcome and to be committed to it for the long term. Perhaps this group of people, they need to go plant the wheat, grind the wheat, uh, and all the steps to make this cake. If that's the case, you should send the people to do this. Have them make it from scratch. 
again, you point the direction, you say, I want a cake, but you let them figure out how to make it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny. I'm imagining it's from sort of like a corporate speak perspective. You know, it's another way that there could be a misalignment there is, is if you're using jargon, like I need you to craft a baked solution that will be a culinary delight, <laughs> but, you know? And so now in a way that there are many baked items that could fit under that, that purview. But if the person really has in mind a cake, they should probably say a cake. It's just so that that's what you get is a cake. No, absolutely. That's where I say, you know, really, uh, to me, leading with speed is really about constantly learning how to have the best impact, not just for yourself, but for your whole organization. So it's learning, if you will, the best language to present these things, the best style to get people on board, and what style is appropriate when. Well, so I'm curious if we are talking about an individual in a workplace and this person wants to see some more speed right away, what would be some of your prescriptive you know, tips and tactics for, hey, right here, right now, do these things and you should see a, a speed boost happening promptly? Okay. Well, here's the quick answer, of course, is you know to listen to uh, Pete's being awesome at your job or reading my books. And that's fun to say. And actually, that is true. But really, <laughs> my real answer is I encourage people not to look for immediate speed bumps because to me, it comes back to what I said before. This really is an, uh, a marathon. So the running metaphor kind of breaks down because you can't constantly accelerate when you're running. You hit the limits very quickly. But from a leadership perspective, a self-leadership perspective, I really believe what people should focus on is creating their own, if you will, leadership acceleration engine. And that is, how do you constantly improve, not necessarily every day, but can you improve 1% a day? Alan Weiss, one of my mentors, said, if you improve 1% a day, you're twice as good in 70 days. Just think if you keep that going. You can hit light speed leadership. Uh, I think of leaders that had such great impact without any political power or position. Gandhi, for example, Martin Luther King. These are leaders that really had a dramatic impact without being paid for it, without being given a title. They're able to constantly improve, constantly learn, and constantly improve the impact of their leadership force. So what I really encourage people to do is figure out what is the best methods for them to learn how to learn how to accelerate their ability to learn. Lovely, thank you. Well, Alan, uh, tell me, anything else you want to make sure to cover before we hear some of your favorite things? There's one big thing I wanted to mention, which is this. Uh, this is one of the new things I've been working on, which is uh, we've coined the word embrace friction at embracefriction.com. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, have you heard a lot about the uh, frictionless workplace, things like that? I know about your take with friction points and collisions, but uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure I know precisely what you're referencing here. Oh, I've seen a lot of in uh, books and podcasts, etc., talking about how to reduce friction at work or how to uh, make the frictionless workplace. And I, I think that's re- rather silly because friction is natural in nature. Without friction, you'd skid off the road. You know, it'd be like an icy road, you're in the ditch. Friction, you need it. And so what I'm finding is too many organizations are actually uh, trying to manage friction away, try to get rid of the conflicts. And what I really believe is one of the biggest 
boons for speed we can have as leaders and people and organizations is figure out ways to embrace friction, to take those points where uh, the heat is really hot and it's like destructive, to be able to transform those destructive friction points, the heat of those, into the heat of uh, innovation. How can you take those warring ideas and make a better idea out of them? So that's one of the big things I'm working on now, and I just want to encourage people to think about, is when you hit those hot points, how can you change them? How can you change the way people are talking about it and engaging in it to put it to a higher level of better value? Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One of my favorites comes back to Winston Churchill. Do not do your best. Do what is necessary. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, one of my favorite experiments that I encourage people to do is help people. Uh, Just see what happens. By the way, you should follow the Red Cross rule. Don't help people that don't want to be helped. But do help people. Do good in the world. And you'll be surprised about how much good karma it does for you and others. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? One of the books I've really been liking lately is called The Essence of Value by Mario Pricken. What's that all about? By the way, I believe you can only get it in a hard copy. It's a fairly big, sturdy book. And it's because it's well-designed. It's really about why do people pay extraordinary money for some pieces and objects? How do you actually determine what is valuable of a thing, a service, etc.? I find it fascinating on a number of levels, both historically and for running my own business. Excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Oh, my iPad with my Apple Pencil has been delightful lately. It has uh, shown me a new ways to uh, take notes and to really uh, do art. Hmm, cool. And how about a favorite habit? Oh, one of my favorite habits now is uh, when I go on long trips with one of my kids, we uh, listen to audiobooks, and that's just been a delightful way to connect. And, and tell me, is there a particular nugget that you share when you're teaching some of this stuff that really seems to connect and resonate and get folks nodding their heads and taking notes and retweeting? <laughs> oh, that's good. Absolutely. Go beyond mad good skills. It's great to have good skills. But one of the things that we really work on is that good skills is nothing without other elements, like the ability to make other people better, the ability to give feedback to other people that makes a positive difference and have them say thank you and you don't get shot in the process. So mad good skills are great technically otherwise, but having a whole picture is dramatically cool and it takes you to the next level. Lovely, thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? You can go to alanwillett.com. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Absolutely. Learn to own the game clock, which is, you know, if you're feeling panicked and stressed, learn to how to look up in the stands and say, hey, isn't that John Candy? (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Well, Alan, this has been fun once again. I wish you lots of luck as you're continuing to illuminate and expand upon these ideas and just keep on doing the great things you're doing. All right. Thanks, Pete. A pleasure to be here. I really resonated with Alan about just being really honest about how the decision is getting made. If it's really just, I want your input and it's my decision, that really works a lot better to be told up front than to pretend it's a collaborative consensus situation when it's not. 
really a collaborative consensus situation. So I hope you dug that and more. Again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items you've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F315. And if you have not already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. If you do so, you'll hear from our next guest, Eduardo Briseño. And he is the CEO of Mindset Works. If you've heard of Carol Dweck's great work on mindset, he's the guy running that company. He's talking about learning and growth and development, how it's done well and not so well. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.